Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. It's great to have you tune in today. I'm glad that you could. Restrictions are opening a little bit. It's one step in a series of many. And the fruit of the Spirit is patience, just saying. Anyway, we are here in part three of Hearing God's Voice. In the last couple of weeks, we have talked about uh, who or what are the voices that we find ourselves listening to and the necessity of us getting into God's Word, the Scriptures, and reading it, spending that quiet time in meditation and talking with God, sharing our heart, and... Um, and taking some time to actually try to listen to what he's trying to communicate to us. Let me just start off with this uh, story about a fisherman named Danny. Now, Danny was a very successful fisherman. He, every morning he went out on the lake of the woods in a small boat, and he would always return a couple of hours later, and it was loaded down with fish, and it never failed. And, and everybody always wondered, you know, how did he do it? And others would go out, they wouldn't catch a thing, but he always came in with a boat just overflowing with fish. One morning, a stranger showed up on the dock with his fishing tackle, and he said to Danny, do you, do you mind if I go with you this morning? And of course, Danny said, sure, just, just jump on in, and we're just going to go across the lake, and uh, I always have good luck. So the guy hopped in the boat, and off they headed across the lake in this little m motor boat, and until they came to the cove, and he stopped the boat, he cut the motor, and uh, he sort of reached, Danny then reached over into his tackle box and he pulled out a stick of dynamite. He lit the fuse, he held it for a moment, let the fuse burn down, tossed it down into the water, and then the next moment, you know, uh, uh, there's this tremendous explosion, just and then fish were everywhere, and of course Danny gets up and he picks up his net and he begins to scoop the fish and, and put them into the boat, and after watching this for a moment, totally shocked, the stranger reaches into his back pocket, pulls out a badge, and, and he shows Danny the badge. He says, look it, I'm a game warden, and you're under arrest. And Danny just simply reached over into his tackle box, pulled out another stick of dynamite, lit uh, the wick, and he held it until the fuse burned down, and then he tossed it to the game warden. And he says, now, are you going to just sit there, or are you going to fish? I, I hope you found it funny because I found it funny because there comes a time where we all have to decide, you know, who we're going to be and what we're going to do. During World War II, Winston Churchill was forced to make a painful choice. The British Secret Service, they had broken the Nazi code. They had informed Churchill that the, the Germans were going to bomb the city of Coventry. And he had two alternatives. You either evacuate the citizens and by doing so you save hundreds of lives, but at the expense of indicating to the Germans that you now know what their code is. Or the other option was to take no action, which would risk hundreds of lives, but keep the information and possibly uh, keep that information flowing and possibly saving more lives in the future. And Churchill was forced to make a decision, and he chose the second course. And the fact of the matter is, decision making affects us all, all on a daily basis. Uh, one researcher has found that the average person makes about 70 decisions a day. That's uh, uh, 25,500 decisions a year. That's, and over 70 years, it's 1.788. 1,788,500 decisions. So you think about that for a moment. What are the most pressing decisions that you have to make today? What are the most pressing decisions that you have to make this year? Philosopher Albert Camus said, life is a sum of all of our choices. So this morning we're going to focus, if you have your Bibles, we're going to focus on a regular guy named Gideon. 
Uh, he's not very impressive when we first meet him, but he makes some choices that flow from his faith in God. Uh, and so significant is the mark that this ordinary man made in his time that he's actually listed in Hebrews chapter 11 alongside the movers and the shakers of the Old Testament. A man of faith. And so we pick up the story in the book of Judges, and it's here where we find a primer on hearing and trusting God. Now, prior to uh, opening Judges 6, we find that the nation of Israel was actually in a very good space. Uh, they were at peace for 40 years. Everything is good. Everything is peaceful. The economy is doing well. People are fed. Families are behaving. Business is good. And as it tends to happen to all of us during these times, Israel began to forget about God when things started to get good. And really what happened is that they became self-sufficient. And so then what took place then actually shook them and shook them to the core. God allowed an enemy, the Midianites, to come crashing down upon them in order to remind them how uh, to remind Israel just how hard life can be without God. And so we pick it up in Judges chapter 6, verse 1, and it says this. Now remember, in, in Judges chapter 5, it says that, you know, everything was good and peaceful. In chapter 1, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, it says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them to the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain cliffs, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Melchites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land, they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and they did not spare a living thing for Israel. Neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels, and they invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I always have to ask when I see stuff like this, why did they wait so long to turn to God? At least seven years before they actually turned to God and cried out for help. And really, the only answer that I can come to is that they're actually a lot like us. They're a lot like you and me. You know, waited till the last possible option played out that they couldn't take it any longer. You know, how many times have circumstances come to us that we can never stop or that we never stop to ask God what he's planning for us during those circumstances, but rather we just kept holding out, just thinking that, you know, I can handle this on my own. I'll see myself through this. And I think that there are a number of lessons that we can learn from this account of Gideon. And the first being that every experience in life is a test. Now, the second one being is that every trial in the lives of God's people really is tailored to draw us closer to God. So you have a test in this trial that draws us closer to God. Uh, I'll actually address this more in February in our next series, but when tough times come, instead of looking at them as if God is trying to punish us, I think in some respects as believers we should be looking at them and trying to see um, uh, God's gift of grace. I believe that God allows tough times to get our attention. We see it here. Even Proverbs chapter 3 says, don't despise the Lord's instruction. Don't loathe his discipline. Um, he loves us so much that he doesn't want us to stay living the way that we are, so he tries to get our attention. He longs to be at the center of our lives. 
C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse the deaf world. The wonderful thing about God is that even though we're slow in returning to him, he is never slow in responding to us. Verses 7 to 10 in our text shows us that when we cry out to God, he moves in mercy towards us. He tells us the truth. He begins to work behind the scenes to help us. And so for Israel, he first sends an unnamed prophet, we don't know who he is, to call them back to a total surrender and full devotion to the Lord. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you from all your oppressors. I drove them out before you. I gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. God didn't hold back. He rather, rather, he actually called them out on what they were doing wrong. And it was their disobedience. But notice that God has a plan here. And what I find interesting is that God's plan also included the most unlikely man named Gideon. And when we meet Gideon in verse 11, he's threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, some of you know this, but I'm a city boy. And uh, normally you wouldn't thresh wheat uh, in a wine press, you do it out in the open so the wind could blow away the chaff. But Gideon is so filled with fear, he goes into hiding in a, a windless wine press, hoping to avert the attention of the Midianites, the, the, the enemy. And really, it's a pitiful sight. It's a sight of frustration. It's a sight of discouragement. It's a sight of fear. And in case you've ever wondered if God had a sense of humor, read verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. (laughs) You have to ask, was God being sarcastic? Or did he see more than Gideon saw? And I believe that God saw what what he was about to make of Gideon. Something that we have to learn to understand is that God sees more than we do. And we also need to be reminded of that on a daily basis. And in this case... It was time that Gideon saw it too. Do you know who you really are? I think one of the biggest lies we tell ourselves is that God only uses special people, right? But listen to this. If you're a believer, the Bible tells us that you are God's child, that you are his friend, that you are his masterpiece, that you have been justified, that you have been freed from condemnation, that you are adopted into his family and that you have citizenship in heaven and that you belong to God, never to be separated from his love and that you have everything from him you need for life and godliness. So when you think about it, God knows who you are even if you don't. And he will work to help you see your true identity. Back to our story. After being called a mighty warrior, Gideon begins to question God. And I find this amazing, this, this interaction in the text, you know, this communication that's taking place. Gideon goes on and he asks, Sir, if the Lord is with us, why has this happened? Where are all his wonders that our forefathers told us about? Because this is so us, right? Things get difficult. And what do we say? Where is God? Right? And so Gideon's conclusion was that God has abandoned them. 
Verse 14 records something that must have bulldozed Gideon's sensibilities. And it says, the Lord turned to him. And I love the way it's described. The Lord turned to him. He looked Gideon full in the face and he said, go in the strength that you have and deliver Israel from the power of Midian. Am I not sending you? You know, Gideon's not doing the math of this divine equation, right? He, he, he just makes mention of how unimpressive his resume is as you continue to read. He's the weakest in his clan. He's the youngest in his family. He doesn't have any authority to call the, the Calvary from even his own tribe, let alone other tribes. But, but God confirms his priorities with his presence. And he says this to Gideon. He says, I will be with you. And you will strike Midian down as if it were one man. And I think what is striking in this passage is that Gideon needed a personal encounter with God and God was the one who reached out to him. Like how many of us find ourselves in that place today? Or even every day, if I can say that. Where we just need a personal encounter with God. We just need God to reach out to us. And God meets Gideon right where he was, giving him a sense of peace and purpose by this promised presence, right? There's something that changes in us when we listen to God's voice. And suddenly God's priorities become the most important things on earth. Now, before Gideon could be used publicly, he had to clean up his own backyard first. And his family was actually breaking the first and second commandments. And uh, they had these idols to bail on their property. And so the first assignment that, that God gave to Gideon was that he had to take his dad's special bull. He had to tear down the idols. And then Gideon was to sacrifice the bull using the wood from the destroyed idols. And what's the point of telling you this? Well, if you really want to learn how to trust God and hear from God, we have to get our house in order. So if your desire is, is to clearly hear God's voice in our lives, there are things maybe he'll be asking you to clean up. Are there some roadblocks in your life between you and God, you know, where he's trying to speak or he's trying to move in your life, but you know that there's just something that you're holding on to? You know, that, that's building that barrier between you and God for either him to speak or even work in your life. Maybe it's some sort of sin that you're clinging to. Maybe God is asking you to confess your sin or to, to deal with certain issues. And by doing so, you return to being fully obedient to him. You know, sometimes I like to see these Bible stories in a form of a movie because I know I play it like that when I read it in my head. Because by the time you get to verse 33, I, I hear ominous sounds would be playing in the background. And there would be a picture of the Midianites and their allies getting ready for the raid and the camp is going on and the, the horses are, are neighing. But, but instead of cringing in the cave, verse 34 says, The Spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon and he blew the ram's horn and the Asbarites rallied behind him. What we see is that Gideon takes a huge step of faith. In his private faithfulness, and now God's Spirit, as, as Gideon begins to act out, God's Spirit is drawing people far and wide to join it with him. And 32,000 men show up. And uh, they're ready to fight. And you can almost hear the eye of the tiger, the theme from Rocky in the background. And, and, and then 
of course, is that ominous wrestling voice that always says, let's get ready to rumble! Sorry, the Bible brings my imagination. But watch this. Even after his divine encounter, even though he had been obedient and he cleaned shop at home, even though the Holy Spirit was empowering him, Gideon still struggled with doubt. He knows God has promised to, to save Israel through him, but he's looking in the mirror and he's looking at his reflection and he doesn't like uh, what he's looking at. And notice what Gideon says to God. He says, if, Lord, if you deliver Israel in my hands, I, as you said, I will put a fleece of wool here on the threshing floor. If the dew is only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I know that you will deliver Israel by my strength, as you said. And I love how tender and patient God is with us in our faith process. You know, Gideon is, is, is making a deal with God, and, and honestly, this is so me. God, if you just do this, then I will, right? If you just do this, God, then I will. And notice that Gideon wants a confirming sign from God, as if this interaction with God to this point hasn't been enough. He still wants more. And there's actually a lot that's written on this passage as to whether or not Gideon was a faithless person because he asked God for another sign or if he was a faithful person being reassured by God and doing the right thing. Anyway, I look at this example in this man's life and I think, wow, this is me. And how many times have I called out to God because I wanted to do the right thing, I wanted to do his will, but I was just unsure of it in the decision-making process. You know, is, is, it, is it God's will? Is, is this the right decision? Is this the wrong decision? Am I going to screw up? What's going to happen? You see, halfway through my university year and through my university degree at the University of Manitoba, I had my personal experience with God where I felt I was actually called right into the ministry. It wasn't my track beforehand. It happened right there and then. I was going to quit university. I was going to go straight to Bible college. And my dad sat me down and, and he said probably the best pieces of wisdom I've ever heard just finish what you started. I've shared that with my kids. I share that with a lot of people. Just finish what you've started. And so here I have the best advice ever. And so I did. I finished. I, I graduated from university with my BA. I decided that I needed to go to seminary. Because I already had a BA. I thought, well, let's go out and get a master's degree. You know, no big deal. <laughs> right. Now, there were two schools for me to choose from. One just outside of Winnipeg, and the other school is actually in Saskatoon. And I wanted God's will for my life. I wanted to make sure that I was doing the right thing. I wanted to know that God's hand was on me. And, and so I actually did my own sort of fleece with God. And I applied to both of the seminaries and I began to pray, God, I, I need to know your perfect will for my life. Close one door, open the other. You, you, you see, I wanted to hear clearly from God. Now back to the scripture. The Bible says the next morning God gave, uh, um, gave his answer to, to Gideon. The fleece was wet and the ground was dry. So here we have an Old Testament doubting Thomas, right? In verse, uh, verse 39 now, he asks that the fleece be dry and the brown ground be covered with dew. And what does God do? He doesn't lose his cool. He just graciously confirms his power again to Gideon. And, and God is developing this man. 
matching each doubt with a type of reassurance. And I believe that God will show you and I the same patience as we seek his face. You know, dispelling our fears to, to grow us into the man or woman of God he wants us to be. So how do we know the will of God for our lives? And I think every Christian has, has wondered this in the midst of crucial decisions. You know, we're just trying to keep within God's will. I want to do God's will in my life. And just like me choosing, you know, what seminary to go to, I, you know, lots of thought, is it his general will? Is it his specific will? Is it his providential will? Is it his moral will? Is it non-moral will? The list goes on. The theology goes on. We're not there. So do we go by fleeces? Do we go by impressions? Do we listen to that still, small voice? And the Bible talks to us about knowing God's will, but it doesn't seem to give us much information as we would like, right? Because we want everything to be crystal clear and easy. So how does God lead us in this process? How do we hear from him? And if we're led by the Holy Spirit, why does it seem so difficult to know what to do? Do you know of which I speak, these questions? And I think sometimes determining God's will is, is highly misunderstood. It's an important issue not only because of the heightened lack of understanding, but because its understanding affects the way we live. A number of books are written. One, a classic book by Gary Friesen called Decision Making in the Will of God. He says this, he goes, For we don't look at the world through the glasses of the Bible itself, but rather our understanding or interpretation of the Bible. And if we misread one part or another, our prescription will be out of kilter and our vision will be blurred. And so what we do is we find ourselves trying to make decisions every day. And of course there are those major ones that just not only affect our lives, but potentially the lives of other people. And so many times... We just don't want to get it wrong. Now, what do you think about the will of God? You know, do you think that God has a specific individual will for each believer? And if so, how do we get to know how to hear it? You know, sometimes the issue isn't really the issue. And so I wonder if the real issue is that life is actually pretty complex and uncertain. And as we get older, we all feel big life decisions looming larger and larger. And we want to know, does God already have our answers pinned down? And if so, how is he going to reveal these things to us? How can we know when he shows us the answers? Is it possible for us to fall out of God's will even when we think we're making righteous or good choices? It's my experience that as we face questions like this, which really sit beneath the surface of almost anybody, it's a time of learning and growing and of change. Our beliefs about the will of God and decision-making affect every area of our lives. You know, we typically surface these questions uh, when, when faced with specific big decisions. You know, should I consider marrying this individual? Does God want me to be single forever? Should I put effort in, into meeting people or, you know, online dating? Should I accept this job? Should I move to a different city? Should I have the surgery? Should I buy this house? Is God calling me to missions or ministry? Uh, which church should I join? How can I know if my passions are from God? 
And, and, and should my passions really inform my career? So many questions. And I think sometimes we're haunted by a nagging suspicion that maybe we're not doing what we should with our lives and maybe that there's just got to be something more. Maybe we believe that we've missed out on God's best for us. And even when we're not facing large decisions or crisis, our convictions about what it means to be guided by the Holy Spirit can greatly affect on how we read the Bible, whether we engage or avoid certain conversations. And, and, and really, you know, things like how we even spend our free time. And, and even if you haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about these questions specifically, you've probably assumed some answers without even realizing it. Another great book written by Dallas Willard called In Search of Guidance says, listen carefully, the ideal for divine guidance is finally determined by God, by the ideal for divine guidance is finally determined by who God is and who we are and what a personal relationship between ourselves and God should look like. Failure of competence in dealing with divine guidance has its deepest root in a failure to understand, accept, and grow into a conversational relationship with God. That sort of relationship suited to friends who are more mature personalities in a share enterprise, no matter how different they may be in other aspects. Within such a relationship that our Lord surely intends us to have and readily to recognize his voice, speaking in our hearts as occasion demands. I believe that he has made ample provision for this in order to fill his mission as the Good Shepherd, which brings us to life and life more abundantly. The abundance of life comes in following him, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. Let me unpack this. Despite the complex nature of life in the 21st century, I believe it to be true that Jesus, that in Jesus, that God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So we need to be encouraged that God is nearer than you think and that his will is actually less difficult to find than you might believe. Issues of God's will can be really hard to struggle with for some of us. And it's possible to spend weeks and months even wondering if we're doing the right thing and wondering if, if God is going to tell us or wondering if we missed out on what he really wanted us to do. And I believe that God's will for our lives isn't hidden or that difficult to find. Look, there are always projects that need to take place around my place, whether it's the baseboards and trim, which I'm basically doing now, or, you know, in the past I built an outdoor shower at the lake, and the list goes on. My wife has all these honeydew lists, right? So usually before I do something, I do a bit of research. I watch a bunch of YouTube videos, right? Or you watch Reno TV uh, shows, and, or you ask others their experience. Hey, how did you do this? Would you do this? And stuff like that. And once I have all the information, I can now put it into practice. And especially as I persevere through heat or sweat or my glasses falling off my face and usually a lot of small cuts and bruises and at the end of the day, sore joints and sometimes tears of frustration, you know of which I speak. And then several times along the way, I usually find that I have to revise my plans based on new information. I didn't think about this, but at the end, the end result is usually something functioning at whatever I decided to do. 
So whether it's a new fence, whether it's, like I said, a shower or the baseboards and the trim and all this other stuff. So knowing and doing the will of God is much like this process when you think about it. We begin with the best information concerning what God has already told us about his will. And we find all this in the scripture. And I think this is the essential ingredient, a love for and a persistent study of the Bible. You know, I can't say it enough. You know, over the first 11 chapters of of Romans, Paul makes claims about who God is and what he has done to reconcile people to themselves. And Paul spends a lot of time laying out a huge theological foundation, cultivating the important truths that reveal the scope of God's saving activity. Now in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul turns a corner. We looked at this last week, right? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and perfect will. See, understanding these verses gives us critical insight into understanding the will of God. And and, and this is one of the few places in the New Testament that explicitly discusses how to know God's will. There are other important passages. Very few, though, present such a straightforward answer to the question, how can we know God's will? (coughs) Excuse me. The phrase there, in view of God's mercy, means because or on the basis of. So basically Paul is saying, because of God's saving attributes that I've been talking about in the last 11 chapters, therefore offer your bodies and don't conform, but be transformed. So Paul really, when you look at what he's saying here, he's addressing the totality of each person. Our bodies and our minds. Already Paul's noted that believers who have the Spirit are able to do righteous things with their bodies, uh, uh, Romans 8.13. And so we shouldn't be surprised when he discusses the role of our actions and our thoughts in, in trying to decipher the will of God for our lives. And so the result of offering our bodies and having our minds transformed is, is that enables us then to test and approve what God's will is. Testing and approving involves both knowledge and application, right? In a nutshell, Paul says the gospel makes it possible for Christians to submit their minds and their bodies in obedience to God, and the result is this on, in this ongoing submission is a growing awareness and practice of the will of God. Again, that, that testing, you, it's, it's one step at a time. And, you know, there are those times then where we're tempted to believe that God is hiding his will from us and that we're overwhelmed with the belief that it's always going to be impossible to do the right thing or that our failure means God, you know, uh, thinks less of us. All these fears should be put to rest by the verses that we see here. If our bodily offering and our transformed thinking are made possible in view of God's mercy— then they aren't dependent upon our own strength or our character or qualifications. That gospel that proclaims that it is God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. God is working through us people. And if Paul says that believers can offer their bodies and can be transformed by the renewing of their minds, then I have no business disagreeing with him. 
Instead, I could start living in hope and believing that God's will isn't so readily far off after all. It's about me being obedient and me rethinking these desires of my heart, wanting to serve God, getting into the scriptures, and testing it all by beginning to live it out. You know, take the time to meditate on the truth of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Rest, <coughs> excuse me, rest in the fact that God doesn't try to hide himself or his will from you, but rather he's shown all of us more mercy than we can ever possibly deserve or even understand. More than that, his mercy actually makes us a, a new way of life, makes a new way of life possible if we're in Christ. If we're filled with fear, uncertainty, disappointment, or doubt about the possibility of knowing God's will, it's, it, it's going to be much harder for us to learn and grow and change. And I think Paul makes it clear that God's will isn't a hidden thing or something that is dependent upon our performance qualifications. God gives us everything we need in the gospel in view of God's mercy. And Paul's promise to us is that we can, in, f- in fact, test and approve what God's will is. This promise is for you and it's for me and it's for all of the church. And so matter, no matter how we have struggled and failed, we need to take heart that God is nearer than we think. And that his will is left less difficult to find than you might believe. God never says anything to me audibly about his will. Just saying. I have really all that I need in the scripture in front of me. In Gary Friesen's book, he gives us four basic principles on knowing and doing the will of God. I'd like to share them with you. Maybe you want to write them down. You're coming to a decision. The first one is where God commands, we have to obey. Well, where does God command? Read the scriptures. Where does God command? Well, then we obey. Pretty easy, number one. Number two, where there is no command, God gives us freedom and responsibility to choose. You hear that? Where there's no command, God gives us freedom and responsibility to choose. Number three, where there is no command, God gives us wisdom to choose. So we have this thing of freedom, but we also have wisdom, which means we need to start asking a lot of questions. And then number four, when we have chosen what is moral and wise, in other words, how it lands up with Scripture, then we trust the sovereign God to work all the details together for good. You know, this. Yeah, does Scripture teach that we are expected or, or, or to, to look for this special revelation from God in decision-making? Well, of course not. If reason would say no, I would say no. Yet, that's how many of us want God to speak to us, right? We want a special encounter. We want a giddy encounter. We want special revelation. Listen, God certainly could reveal his will for a particular decision um, that's not directly addressed in Scripture. He could do that. He's done it in the past, and as even Scripture records, his ability to do so now remains unchanged. He could do it if he wants. So if he wanted to, God could directly communicate specific guidance today. If he were to do so, it would be expected that the revelation would be crystal clear and that the means would, would be uh, probably like through an angelic visit or some sort of supernatural vision or even an audible voice. However, 
Biblical decision-making does not anticipate such divine intervention. It doesn't rule it out. I'm not saying it can't happen. But it just assumes that the word we already have for us is adequate in our decision-making process. And if it's not enough in some situation, well, then it's up actually to God to provide what we need. If God never says anything to me audibly about his will, again, I would still have more clear instruction in Scripture than I could ever hope to faithfully carry out in one lifetime. And I think we can anticipate that the Holy Spirit will use his words to shape our minds in our decision-making. Look at Adam and Eve. Their one act of disobedience brought the fall of the entire created order. It would have been easy for God to arrange things in such a way that they didn't have to, really the freedom to make that mistake. But it seems that, that God views freedom of choice as a significant part of our spiritual development. Can you remember a time where uh, you became more aware of your freedom to choose? And you had to start adulting, right? Making adult decisions. For some of you, you're over 18 years, still not there yet. I kid, I kid. It's a joke. But freedom is a scary thing when you think about it. You know, I'm convinced that there's a kind of growing up that God has ordained to take place through the exercise of our freedom and responsibility to choose. A parent's goal for their children is that their children need to ask them less, uh, you know, less what to do in every decision, right? You want your kids to mature. Good parents want their children to become mature enough to make decisions on their own. Proper decisions, smart decisions, wise decisions. You know, between a conversation between my wife over the years, she would often hear me say, well, he's over 18, he can make his own choices. <laughs> I can guide, I can direct, but I can't make the choice for them. We know that God never leaves us on our own. <coughs> Excuse me. And that if we are really obedient, it's really the Holy Spirit empowering us. But God has ordained our limited human perspective such that we must make decisions without always knowing if they're right. And this is part of our, what I would call our sanctification and not something to fear. We make decisions to the best of our ability with the all, as much information as we have possible and we step forward. We move ahead. Not sure is this the right, but so far everything that's coming my way is telling me it is. And so maybe you're sitting there today and you're wondering, well, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Should I go to school? Should I take this job? Is there something better out there on the horizon for me? You know, who should I marry? Look, life is a never-ending series of choices. And, and, and can we know whether we are making the right decisions? I have good news for you. God wants to speak to us, and yes, you can know that you hear his voice. God wants to fellowship and communicate with us, and that's a two-way communication. Why? Because you really can't have a relationship unless there's true dialogue. And so how do you get to know the person? Well, by communicating with them, by talking, by listening. And it's the exact same with our relationship with God. 
And maybe you're not sure about all this Jesus stuff, about what I'm talking about. Listen, God loves us so much that he sends his son to die on our to take our place and to die for us. And he did this so that we could once again have fellowship with him. In the book of Hebrews, we see that we can have access to God's very presence. He also wants us to be fulfilled and and blessed and successful in the plan that he has established for our lives so that we can be a reflection of his love and blessing in the earth. You know, the Lord makes clear his intentions for you and I, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, the thoughts of peace and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. <coughs> we see in Genesis 3.8, they heard the Son of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And this is how God wants to relate to us as well. It's God's desire to walk and to communicate with his children. That's you and me. He wants to talk to us, and he wants us to listen and to talk to him too. We can hear his voice. The scriptures, the Bible, that's God's love letter to humankind. It makes it clear that we're created to have this two-way communication with them. And Jesus even tells us that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So how do you know if you're making the right decisions in life? That's the question of the ages, isn't it? But as a child of God, we don't have to walk blind. We can have confidence that we're going to hear his voice. Paul writes in Romans 8, For as many that are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And so conversely, the Scripture implies that if we are God's children, if we are born again, we will be led by the Spirit. We have more promises Uh, In Psalm 37, the Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. God will order our steps. And even when we blow it, even when we stumble, if we are truly doing his will, he will lift us up. He will give us that second chance, right? And the most difficult part of hearing God is the fact that it takes time to learn and to discern God's voice from all the others. But it also takes a humble heart. Jeremiah 29, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and, I, and you will seek me and you will find me when you search me with all your heart. We can't make demands of God. We can't shake our fist at the sky and say, all right, God, let me hear you. But we can ask, we can seek, we can knock. And the Bible promises that God's going to open the door that God will reveal himself to those who humbly search for him. I think the writer of the Proverbs, he, he describes the way that, uh, that our thoughts and our attention sort of line up with God's will when we actually submit ourselves to the will of the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. See, God reveals himself to us and, and, and through us as we humbly seek him. And the familiar passage in Proverbs 3 even makes it more plain. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not onto your own understanding and all your ways. Acknowledge him. And he directs your path. Step forward. Again, the writer of the Hebrews tells us that we can train our ear to recognize God's voice above all the noise. And it's by taking the time in the scriptures, by praying, by talking with God, that we're able then to discern whether we hear is actually of God, our flesh, or even the devil. Isaiah says that whether you turn to the right or the left, I like this. Whether you turn to the right, whether you turn to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. 
So God will speak, and you can hear his voice, but we have to be careful, especially if you're a young Christian, that, that, that you objectively confirm that you're following the Holy Spirit and not another voice. Because our flesh, you know, you know, our own flesh screams pretty loud, especially when we're under pressure or we want something very badly, right? And the devil, as we, we've heard already, is the father of lies. He's this great deceiver. So how can we know we're hearing God's voice? I've said it before. I'll say it again, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it again. Get into Scripture. Get into Scripture. Second Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped. For what? For every good work. For taking that step. And secondly, seek godly counsel. Proverbs 11 says, Where no counsel is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Get in a life group. Ask questions. Talk to people that you know who are older in their faith, more mature than you, that you look up to, that you respect. Ask away. Let them give you guidance. And then, Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts to which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. Okay, God, I'm making this decision. I trust that I've done all my homework. Here we go. And the bottom line here is that big decisions and even some small ones Take big prayer. In other words, as we humble ourselves before God, as we seek His guidance into our lives, the Good Shepherd will be faithful to lead us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Psalm 23. You remember, remember my prayer regarding which seminary I was to go to? God, I need to know your perfect will for my life. So close one door and open the other. I was accepted at both. Let's pray. God, as much as I want to know you and know your will for my life and for you to guide my choices, I I need to know you more than anything. And I think that that has to be my highest priority and goal. You promised that I would find you and I seek you with all my heart. And if I seek you first, perhaps you will make my options much more clear. But regardless, help me long for you and your righteousness above all else. Show me how to immerse my life into who you are and trust that you will meet my need for understanding. Lord, I I often say I want to do your will, but then I stubbornly cling to my own plans And those plans sometimes run contrary to your purposes in my life and my ministry. And and there's always this battle going on and I need to decide whether I choose to surrender to you or to follow my own inclinations. And so God, my prayer is that you would conquer my heart. Why? So that you would not only just bless me, but that you would lead me. And as I surrender to you, and as we surrender to you, fill us with the Holy Spirit so he could guide us and teach us more about your will. Help us to tune into the Spirit's voice and make us more careful about the voices that we allow to speak into our life. Fill our thoughts and light our path, God, with your truth. Make us more aware of the subtle leadings of the Holy Spirit so that um, we won't miss them 
if we're too preoccupied in the things of the world. Finally, God, just quiet our hearts so that we could hear your words of love as we wait for direction in many critical choices in our lives. And I commit this to you in your name. Amen. Soul Sanctuary this week, may God walk with you. May his grace flow over you. May he give you strength to be victorious. And when you feel alone, may he illuminate your eyes to see that he is walking with you in that dark valley. May he be your life preserver when the water is above your head. And may he be your cooling water when you walk through the fire. Soul, now go. Live the church. And we'll see you next week.